BFG people, hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magal, the Global Strategy Director for Crypto at 11FS, and this is episode 175. I'm joined by my amazing co-host Kai Sheffield, Head of Crypto at Visa. Hi Kai, how are you doing? I am doing well. It's been a crazy few weeks, but we are still here. Uh, I'm ready to learn today. We got to go back to first principles. United we stand. It's great to have you with us. So this is an insight show. So we're going to be talking about decentralized exchanges, also known as DEXs. And to dig into this, we're joined by Ludmila Lopez. She's an independent Web3 researcher at Bankless Brazil DAO. Welcome to the show, Ludi. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing fine. Uh, thank you for having me here. Excited to talk about DEXs today. Great. And we're also joined by Karel Kubat, CTO at Composable Finance. Welcome to the show, Karel. How are you doing? Yeah, doing great. Super excited to be talking about DEXs today. I've done a lot of work on them myself, designing and building. So really interested to share my knowledge with you guys today. Lovely. So before we dive in, just as a reminder to the listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they are representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So do your own research. So let's get started. So the first part, we're going to try and outline what are exchanges. So we're going to start off from the very top, and then we go deeper into the topic and bring everyone up to speed. So for the listeners who might not just be joining us or dipping their feet into the world, uh, this world for the first time, let's talk a little bit about what is a crypto exchange. So I'm going to start uh, with you, Karel. Um, what are crypto exchanges? How many types of crypto exchanges exist? And you know, can you kind of help us with the taxonomy of uh, DAXs for start? Yeah, so if I were to define an exchange, uh, classical exchange, a centralized exchange, I would say that they have two core functionalities. One is custody of funds, so that during the trading operations themselves, the counterparty is assured that they will receive their funds. So they act as a trusted third party, and they basically provide computation servers. Their magic sauce is some type of algorithm by which they can efficiently match orders against each other. Um, but in essence, that's what they do. They match orders and they custody those funds in the meantime. A DEX tries to achieve the same, um, but not holds custody of your funds. So that's where the crypto magic comes in, uh, where you still manage your own funds, your own private keys. Um, and also why a DEX is fundamentally different, because in a centralized exchange, you've got off-chain computation power. So your algorithm can be very different and you can do an order book type exchange. Well, in a smart contract, you're far more limited, and that is why we use automated market makers, which provides computationally a far cheaper model, but also a model that's less capital efficient overall than a centralized exchange. Interesting. I'm interested in, in kind of breaking that a little bit further down. So I'm going to go to you, uh, Luigi, to talk a little bit about the functioning from your research for uh, Bankless Brazil DAO. What have you seen uh, in terms of DEXs, both in, in the AMM forum or automated market maker, or in the order book forum where orders are matched from sellers and buyers in, you know, part, as part of the double-sided marketplace? Yeah, actually, we've um, uh, come from a long way of researching how to do the best uh, DEXs. And in the beginning, we tried to make DEXs similar to centralized exchanges where you have order book, Matching, but like uh, Carol said, um, the most difficult part is having the market makers 
because you have these big institutions that they match uh, your orders. But when you want things to go automatically without any centralized party, you won't have this institution. So the first uh, decentralized exchanges we, we had was like an Ether deal. Tell. So you used to see those order books and not moving anywhere. And you, if you wanted to get your, your trade going, you had to be a market maker yourself. So buy uh, with the, just match uh, your buying order with the selling order was already there. So the new model, the AMMs, they came to kind of give a solution for the problem of bringing exchanges to the decentralized words. So now anyone can provide this liquidity. So you don't have to wait until your orders are matched. And these, uh, these trades now they're based on swaps and not on um, buys and, and selling orders. So this brought a new whole dynamics to the decentralized exchanges and it works like way better with this mechanism of not trusting centralized parties than the order book one. And also one big advantage of decentralized exchanges is the transparency because we can never know what's going on behind centralized exchanges unless they reveal uh, their numbers on documents and documents that most of people, they don't have access um, because like they're too technical and stuff. But now with decentralized exchanges, we have a lot of technical people just taking a look at these numbers without waiting for these numbers to be revealed. So anyone can just see what's going on behind these entities that, uh, that have such high volume of uh, money going on. And also they're non-custodians, so they don't hold your assets actually. So when you provide a swap, when you're exchanging one digital currency to another, the contract just uh, uh, asks for an allowance from your wallet and it matches with the, um, it goes to the liquidity pool and just gets your coin to this pool and brings uh, uh, the other coin back to your wallet so they don't hold uh, your assets, at least not this way. But that's the basics. So Kai, on, on your user experience, right? You've been exposed to crypto for a long, long time and you have used uh, decentralized exchanges here and there. What is your initial reading? So for, for those of our listeners that aren't exactly crypto natives, what, are, what, what, what does the experience look like for a regular user? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting to think about what the experience is today versus what the experience used to be. Uh, like today, you know, when you go to, to Uniswap, you, know, you, can, you start by connecting your wallet uh, so you connect an existing non-custodial wallet you know, to it. Uh, then you, you know, generally have to interact with a smart contract and approve that asset to be traded you know, on the DEX and then you know, do a, a, a second transaction to actually um, do an exchange. But it's so much easier than what it was in the days of Ether Delta. And I remember trying to use Ether Delta. I don't think I ever successfully executed a trade on Ether Delta, but it was this really challenging platform. And if I remember correctly, it was you were you would have to pay gas fees you know, to Ethereum to be able to you know, submit a, a bid or, or an ask that may not have been filled. And so you had people who were you know, interacting with the network, but not ending up with a successful trade. 
Um, and it just became this very challenging experience. And so maybe Corella would, would love to, like, I feel like I miss, like, how did we go from Ether Delta to Uniswap where the experience is, is very much night and day? And, like, you know, it seems like the AMM was the key innovation that got us there. And so can you help trace you know, how we got from, from one to the other? Yeah, so I think two key innovations. One is at the smart contract level, because like Lumila said, with the uh, AMM model, you have guaranteed liquidity at a certain point. So way more predictability. It's more resistant against MEV. Uh, if we did order book exchanges on chain, then you can definitely far easier clear the order book and just waste gas fees for the users. Uh, if you are a malicious uh, validator or set of validators, that's a good way to make money. Um, and the second one is simply UI UX. Uh, MetaMask itself is designed around the model that you do single transaction submitting, signing every single one. And that, to be honest, isn't great UX. It does make a lot of sense from a security perspective. So what I feel crypto is heading towards is finding this sweet spot between security and usability, where you might do an approval once to then be able to trade quite often and not need to go through the painful registration flow. Still think there's a lot of room left here as well, um, as I think many traders don't want to individually approve assets, but might want to approve assets and batches. We all know that's a dangerous operation because then a contract has access to all of your assets intended or not. So finding this exact sweet spot where um, we do increase that usability, that's where I think the future is going. And most of the work here actually needs to be done at the wallet level itself and not at the exchange level. So I feel, <clears throat> if I can be very critical of current wallet uh, creators, that they're relatively limited. And MetaMask itself hasn't progressed as much as I'd like to have seen it over the last year or so. But I do think that with the increased amount of users, the increased amount of feedback, we're seeing everything heading in the right direction. Uh, different ecosystems creating different wallets, experimenting around with what works best. Um, ideally, to me, uh, the future is integrated hardware wallets in laptops and phones to directly do all of this approving for us without me needing to go through this flow directly. And that's, I think, kind of what we'll end up with in about 10 years or so. Interesting. I uh, I do have one question in terms of uh, business models, right? Because if if not every, but most of the decentralized exchanges are also decentralized managed organizations. I don't want to say DAOs because not every one of them are DAOs, but they are decentralized managed organizations. Um, one thing that I think is interesting for our listeners is to understand what is the business model of a decentralized exchange, right? Because centralized exchanges live off of either if they're if they're licit and they're operating within you know pre-existing rules, they will make money off of fees, right? And they have um, a client base. If they if that scales, they have more uh, businesses, and with more businesses, you know, more fees. What does that look like? Uh, for DEXs um, in, in this sense? Is this the same business model and how different um, how how different business models exist or how many different business models exist when it comes to DEXs? And maybe, Lujamila, on your research, uh, what have you found? Okay, so yeah, the basic business model is similar to centralized exchange in terms of fees. So for each swap you do, uh, they usually take like a or 0.1%, sometimes less, and this is the basic one. Uh, in terms of uh, the team that manages the DEX, and this is a complex discussion because um, like we don't have a, a lot of protocols uh, managers in terms of teams managing this protocol. 
They don't have actually really complex um, monetization models, and this is a problem. So let, let me give you an example. Uniswap takes uh, fees from the swaps, but all these fees, they are forwarded to the liquidity providers. So these people that put their, their assets in these liquidity pools that um, make these swaps available, so they receive all these fees. So none of these fees go actually to the company that it's managing uh, Uniswap, but they got uh, money from investors, so they're still uh, using that money to to improve like the platform and still get to this monetization plan. But this is something that they discuss in a like on a daily basis. Like, should we turn on the fees to go to the DAO or not? And we have other platforms that they split like fifty and fifty percent. If I'm not mistaken, uh, I don't know if Kyber does that. I, I, I want to know from the solution swap, right? Yeah, so 50% goes to the liquidity providers and 50% goes to the DAO treasury. So then the DAO can vote using their governance tokens on what to do with this money. But basically are those fees that comes from swaps. And also sometimes they charge fees when you deposit uh, your tokens on the liquidity pools. I'm pretty sure that Curve uh, charges you when you're withdrawing, actually, not depositing. So, yeah, you have those fees on swappings uh, and sometimes withdrawing. And if those fees are split between the DAO or just the liquidity providers, then each protocol has these percentages like in a different way. Any different experience on your end, uh, Cardell? Um, well, what I'm seeing is uh, that the fundamental DEX model where you just charge fees indeed doesn't actually earn that much. It's also a race to the bottom uh, because running a decentralized exchange doesn't cost the team anything. It's running as a smart contract. So you don't have the uh, massive server fees that the regular exchange needs. But at the same time, your protocol can be forked as happened with Uniswap. Um, where I think most of the new innovations going into is order flow and matching market makers before an actual order to Uniswap reaches Uniswap itself. And these protocols taking most of the fees over there. Uh, you can get really sophisticated models here where you collaborate with block space uh, owners like validators, uh, parties like Flashbots and market makers to basically settle as much as you can off-chain, which means that overall the entire DEX needs less gas to operate and at the same time uh, offer better execution rates for your users. And because you move part of it off-chain but still have the same security guarantees as a DEX, that's where you can have a real competitive advantage with other DEXs, because then it's all about more a regular company that you manage, relations, servers, et cetera. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're seeing right now happening with most, if not all, DEXs. Can we go back to just market makers for, for a moment? And just, can you unpack, like, what role does a market maker play on a centralized exchange? And then this concept of an automated market maker, like, how do I explain this to my grandparents? Like, what what's the like easiest possible way? Like, oh, AMM. Like, what is it, and how is it different than a centralized exchange market maker? Yeah, so the regular market maker on the centralized exchange basically observes a market, let's say for stock from some company, where there's very little buy and sell order. So nobody's buying, nobody is selling. Uh, but employees get stocks vested from time to time. So they do want to sell their stocks. So the market maker sees this as an opportunity. If they artificially create a lot of buy orders and a lot of sell orders and leave a little bit of a gap in between, then this gap, the spread, is what they'll be making. Because sometimes people will be buying, sometimes they'll be selling, but they'll always be buying and selling from the market maker itself. 
And every time a new order arrives in this gap, they just buy it off the market to maintain this gap. So effectively, they're just a regular trader. They, they see bananas somewhere for a higher price, they buy it, and they hedge that someone will come around later to purchase it. And the great thing is with markets that have very little trading, this can still facilitate regular trading for everyone. Now, if you start to model this in uh, relatively simple mathematics, you'll realize that the same algorithm that a market maker uses can be very cheaply expressed in a smart contract to maintain that spread, to maintain the buy orders, maintain the sell orders by only keeping track of three numbers. Um, and that is the basically UniV2 model. Uh, an order book you need to keep track of, let's say a million numbers, because you keep track of every individual order. But with the decks, you just keep track of three different ones and you use very simple mathematics. So basically what we did is we turned the model upside down. And instead of starting out with people want to buy, people want to sell and want to place the orders themselves, we thought, what happens eventually? A market maker always takes positions. And so how about we make the protocol itself a market maker? And that's also where this name automated market maker comes from, because it's executing the same financial models as regular uh, centralized finance market makers would. I think I've almost got it. And then like the the implications of it, it means everyone can be a market maker, right? That by holding an asset, you can put that asset to work as a market maker versus having to be a sophisticated trader with a certain amount of assets Um and the ability to write you know, an algorithm to market make yourself. Exactly, because it used to be that you'd need to manage, let's say, 200 million US dollars per market that you would market make. You'd need to have software running constantly to update the order book, be as fast as possible. So you're fighting against uh, high frequency traders, etc. So if you just hold, let's say, $100 of Apple stocks and $100 regular dollars, there's no way you can participate in market making. But obviously, market makers are making a nice spread. Like they've got a relatively safe revenue that they're generating uh, over time. Um, and so with liquidity providing in UniV2, basically any small holder can become a part of this market making club. You could already do this in centralized exchanges. If you opt in to have your stocks be used by market makers, you might earn a small part of that revenue. But they're definitely keeping a very large percentage of what they're making. And you're just getting the scraps in the end. While with DEXs and especially UniV2, you're getting 100% of it. Great. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Kai, for us to go talk about the challenges on, on DAXs. Yeah. So, so maybe starting with you, Ludmilla, like what types of markets are DEXs good at and what markets are DEXs you know, less efficient or not as ideally suited for? Um, do you want to elaborate what do you mean by types of markets? Um... Is there a difference in the sense of like the pairs that you're trading? Like whether it's a long tail asset uh, that someone just created versus it's a major asset like ETH. Like are market makers better at some type of pairs than others? Or is it, you know, it, it doesn't make a difference what you're actually trading. How do you think about the structure comparing in uh, a decentralized exchange to a centralized exchange? Okay, I think the, the most important aspect of that is that uh, DEXs, they are not regulated by central entities. So if you have assets, if you're going to swap or trade assets that they have low liquidity and low liquidity understands by kind of low demand. Uh, so like small assets that are, um, sometimes people call them shitcoin just because they're not like, uh, they don't have a lot of demand. So they don't have a lot of liquidity. 
it's really dangerous to trade those on decentralized exchanges because the price can fluctuate a lot. So let me give you maybe a, a, an analogy. I want to buy like a, a piece of art from Picasso. So you're going to find a lot of people that uh, are selling like a Picasso pictures. You're going to find a lot of people that are, want to buy Picasso pictures. So uh, if you want to sell someday your Picasso painting, it's probably it's going probably to be easy to sell those. But if I have a painting from a local artist here from Brazil, maybe I won't be able to sell this in the future because there is low demand. So it's kind of a low liquidity uh, asset. I'm using art as an example, but it would be a good example for NFTs because it's uh, non-fungible. But anyway, that's the concept of liquidity. So when you were swapping two assets that they have low liquidity on a DEX, you can, this price can fluctuate a lot. And on the centralized exchange, you have rules for protecting some of these, these kind of things. So you have uh, rules from government and regulators that are going to limit the amount of fluctuation that you're going to, to see in, this, in these exchanges. But in decentralized exchanges, you think that you're going to buy a coin for $10, but in the end, you're going to pay like $3 because the liquidity pool was so empty that you had to buy like all the coins available. So I think this is the most uh, dangerous, one of the most dangerous things when trading in decentralized exchanges that people need to pay attention to. But if you are on a pool with two stable coins, so if you are changing your USDC for Tether, these usually are pools that with a lot of liquidity, simply because uh, both of them have the goal to, to keep uh, the prices a dollar. So it's um, safer. I don't, I don't want to use the word safe because anything is completely safe in this environment, but it's safer to provide liquidity in highly correlated assets. So you're going to find a lot of coins in that basket of a digital coin. So if you want to swap one for another, there are a bunch of coins available, a lot of liquidity available. So you won't suffer from price volatility or sandwich attacks or things like that. So, so it seems like there's risk to a trader of potential slippage if there's you know not a lot of liquidity there. What about uh, Corel? This I hear this concept of impermanent loss. Like, what does that actually mean, and what risks are there to someone who's a liquidity provider, you know, who's depositing assets in in order to earn fees? Like, what what are the risks that they're actually taking when when they're doing that? So impermanent loss is quite complicated to get your head around, but not that complicated in the end. Let's say we have two pools of assets that at the start that you start providing liquidity have exactly the same value. The DEX will give you back a share of the total amount of assets in the pool at that moment. So basically you have a stake in both sides at the same time, represented by one single other asset. Now, if the value starts differentiating, you still have a share in the total value between those two pools. However, you're now getting more of the assets that's more present in the pool that has dropped in price because as uh, assets start increasing in amount in a pool, that means the price must have been dropping because the other side has decreased so more people have been buying from that side and thus pushing the price up. So in the end, you're still, uh, you still have exactly the same amount of share in the pool that you started out with. However, <clears throat> effectively, the funds that you'll get back have been reduced in value because you no longer hold the same amount of this high value asset. 
Um, actually, if you express this the other way around, this becomes quite a bit more technical, then impermanent loss matches Black-Scholes uh, option pricing approximation. So it really is the risk of holding those assets in the meantime and not being able to rebalance. Also provides challenges to market makers at the moment, because as I just said, anyone can become a market maker right now and partake. However, to properly manage impermanent loss, that is what the really big players are really good at. That is what these professional market makers on DEXs have optimized. How do you minimize this impermanent loss over time by rebalancing your position? Um, if I were to recommend my grandmother to use a DEX after explaining it to her, I would definitely say go with a stable swap DEX, a DEX that does uh, USDC against USDT or something like that to reduce this amount of impermanent loss that you can obtain. Maybe, Mauricio, how do you think about like the role of blockchain scalability here? Like, it, it seems like AMMs have become able to be used even with you know, blockchains that haven't really scaled yet. As blockchains scale more, are AMMs still going to be the dominant model, or or will it actually enable other types of decentralized exchanges like you know order book style ones to work? Because you could have fast and cheap enough blockchains to be able to actually, you know, execute or put an order on chain. I think technically, uh, when you have more instructions to perform, regardless of whether you're running an AMM or a order book style uh, exchange, the more instructions you have to execute, the more computing power you're going to require. And if you're doing that on a uh, highly performant uh, blockchain or a you know, lesser performant. Uh, blockchain, the comparison is between, you know, two different DEXs on the same blockchain operating against each other, uh, competing against each other in that space. So uh, I think what's going to improve a lot is how much better um, the coding or the instructions on those blockchains are going to be uh, coded and compiled for processing of a smart contract uh, because the more efficient they are, um, then the cheaper it is to run. And the more instructions you can build, the more sophisticated the trading strategies could be. So um, I'm, I'm super positive that the more we have scalable or more scalable solutions on blockchains, the more uh, we'll see of these highly performant uh, DEXs. But as Karel was saying, uh, not everything is going to happen on chain. And that's something that um, I know there are blockchain purists that are gonna, you know, hear me say this and you know, yank their hairs. Uh, I I don't mean to offend you. What I'm saying is that um, whatever needs to be on chain will be on chain, and whatever doesn't need to be on chain for whatever the case is, uh, then it doesn't, and and it will remain as such. Um, even if I mean, I know we're talking about proofs of reserve, proof of liability, and all of that stuff, but. Yes, there will be spaces for non or, or off-chain processing uh, if that means that we're settling against uh, the layer or the corresponding blockchain layer that we're using to settle the, the, the trades. But uh, that is where I think the high performance uh, is going to, to uh, happen. And I'm, I'm super pumped that uh, we're talking about DEXs because DEXs are sort of the core validator of the stablecoin use case, right? We keep saying, oh, yeah, obviously stablecoins are uh, means of payment and, and it's used and it's used uh, as uh, payment rails. Uh, but when you have not one but two killer use cases for a particular uh, primitive, then that is unbeatable. And I think that DEXs are 
the second use case for stable coins that really you know nailed the the pin on on the importance of stable coins for the crypto ecosystem yeah Lumila, i'm curious how how you think about that of like you know when you have two stable coins uh, that represent different currencies. You know, when you've got a, a dollar-pegged currency like USDC, and then uh, let's say a, a, a Brazilian real currency, do you see use cases for DEXs to become these foreign exchange markets where people will convert between two fiat currencies, but be able to do this in this non-custodial, permissionless way? Or are you seeing that activity happen today? Of you know, two fiat currencies represented as stablecoins. You know, in a pool being converted through something like Uniswap. Yeah, like uh, stable coins, they they can be applied to so uh, many different uh, use cases. Like you said, when you have country specific uh, pegged like stable coins, imagine that you need to travel somewhere else. So right now I'm in Brazil, I have a lot of Brazilian real, and I'm going to Russia. And if you go to um, uh, 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 usually, um, oh, I forgot the name in English, a <laughs> place where you exchange your national currency, fiat currency for another one, and you pay a uh, really high taxes, like just for that. So I have a thousand reais and I want to go to Russia, I'm going to lose like 10% in fees. And so, yeah, so this is one of the biggest cases for, for a stablecoin, but also diversify your portfolio. So you have your digital currency portfolio with a lot of these volatile assets, but you want to balance your portfolio without the need of uh, getting this money out of, uh, of the blockchain. You have these stablecoins to help you uh, make your portfolio more diverse, more stable, depending on... Um, based on what kind of currency do you want to to diversify it? So you can expose yourself to the uh, US dollar, you can expose yourself to euro without having to buy those uh, fiat currencies. And also the different types of stablecoin. So you have DAI that is really different from USDC and you have Tether that is similar to USDC, but you have different entities running it. So it also depends on which algorithms or entities you trust most. And you can also expose yourself to these technologies. So, okay, I want to have my portfolio better balanced with some stable assets, but I'm kind of afraid that sometimes Peter also blow, blows up because I don't know, they don't have all the reserves set straight. Uh, I'm just uh, guessing a distorted opinion, but I also want to expose my portfolio to die because if something happens to Peter, I also have died. There is another type of, uh, of uh, stable cryptocurrency. So yeah, like we have all these interesting use cases for, for that. Yeah, su super interesting. So we're, gonna, we're just gonna take a, a quick pause here and we'll be back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. 
unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Okay, so we're back and we're going to take a look into the future of DAXs. Uh, so I'm interested in, in learning a little bit from Ludmila at first. Um, what is it, how, how do we get DAXs to be more prominent? Because if this is a model that is, again, decentralized, censorship resistant, um, has a better um, economics than a centralized exchange and is more transparent, um, then it should be something that the, as we as an industry should be looking to pursue. So in your opinion, what would it take for us to take this to mainstream? I see three main components that I can think right now for the future of DEXs. One, of course, is UI and UX. And I see the future where the main place for trading assets, not the DEX itself, and our aggregators or the wallets, so we have some wallets that they just use the, the, these exchanges in the backend for trading your assets. So you can do everything from your wallet. So this is one thing. Another thing is uh, liquidity. So we were discussing about market makers and the thing about market makers in centralized exchanges, there are these big people with, uh, people with a lot of money. So, and we, we need a lot of money to make uh, swapping and trading fluid. And that's why incentives for people to provide liquidity is a huge thing. It's a huge discussion. So uh, this is another challenge as well. How to incentivize people to provide liquidity without um, compromising your treasury, like the protocol treasury or the DAO treasury. And another thing is bringing awareness to this transparency. So, um, of course, We've heard about this recent news and we see a lot of people speculating what is going on with these entities. So what is going on with Genesis? What is going on with FTX? And people speculate because people don't have the numbers. So when you don't have the numbers, you just speculate. But when you have something going on with the DEX, with the protocol, you have researchers, they go there, they dig the numbers and they write a report and you have a lot of different researchers doing that. So. You don't have to trust a single one to to get the numbers from. You don't have to trust uh, an entity. You just have like to compare uh, a bunch of numbers and reports. And this transparency also makes a, a huge difference. And sometimes we tend to leave uh, this transparency behind for lack of user experience. But now we're kind of paying more attention to the importance of having transparent uh, numbers and cash flow for these exchanges. And um, Karel, in your opinion, um, this recent uh, kind of Enron, Lehman, Bear Stearns moment we've been through uh, recently, um, do you believe that this, is, instead of being a centralized exchange, if this was a decentralized exchange, how, how would those things would have transpired? Do you think that we would have had such a massive um, break in trust if, if these were running on a truly decentralized exchange? 
So a, a properly architectured decentralized exchange doesn't do any uh, reserve fractional banking, right? So there's always one asset accounting for every other assets. Uh, I think technically, like if you were very degenerate, you could definitely implement a smart contract that does uh, fractional reserve, but nobody has, and I don't think anyone will or even use that. Um, in this case, I feel like FTX really strengthens the uh, generational promise of crypto, right? It once again shows that every time you go towards centralization, you're opening up massive amounts of opportunities for fraud, security issues, etc. And just shows that really the use case for DEXs is there and the need for DEXs is there. I'd be more worried, to be honest, if uh, bank fraud and exchange fraud never occurred, because then crypto as a whole wouldn't really have a reason to exist. And this just shows why we are building this stuff all together. Um, definitely it hurts crypto short term, right? And it breaks down trust everywhere. Um, but once again, we've been saying for the last five years, not your keys, not your crypto. Um, so people need to be aware of this. You're simply trusting another company. In this case, quite badly, that was a US company because I would definitely put a little bit more trust in that too and assume they are regulated. But I feel this also ties into the wider movement of that reactive regulation simply doesn't work. Using smart contracts and code as law prevents any fraud from actually happening. Hiring 10,000 new IRS auditors only means that you figure out later that everything was wrong, but the regular person will still be subject to the same amount of fund loss. So to me, how governments and big institutions should deal with this is realizing that they need to be more proactive and start participating in the ecosystem more, and that technically, uh, the Fed could be a smart contract audit firm or uh, even defining uh, ERC interfaces, right? And actually dictating how we should be constructing DEXs and what we should abide by to do it properly. That reduces how many people they'd need to hire and means that people don't lose their funds anymore since the fraud wasn't possible to start with. And that to me is kind of the, the, the promise of smart contracts altogether. I, I really like that. We've been talking about this in the podcast for some time now. Now, Kai, um, one last kind of you know thought about user adoption in in the progress of uh, decentralized exchanges. What is what is it that we need to do to actually bring more people in for the benefits that they represent? Yeah, I'm interested to just see how the entry point for consumers you know plays out. Like today, it seems like it's it's starting with you know non custodial wallets that are you know primarily you know browser extensions that you're connecting you know your wallet. You're going to the application. And then interacting with it, um, but I'm interested to see if if the 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 existing centralized exchanges end up becoming interfaces that could sit on on top of decentralized exchanges in the back end. And so it may be the same entity that you traded with before, but it could become easier for that entity to list you know more assets uh, or be able to to manage you know their product if they can actually incorporate. Um, decentralized exchanges on the back end. And so I think this this concept of composability and and how easy it is for developers to build products on top of exchanges, where today it's like Uniswap is the, the front end and Uniswap is the back end of a smart contract. Will there be many more front ends that sit on top of the Uniswap smart contract and are integrated into other experiences? Uh, I think that will be really interesting to see. That will be the ultimate DeFi mullet, as we say it. So that is great. So um, I hope we can come back maybe like 12, 18, 24 months from now and have the same conversation and see where these things stand because I think they are 
very promising, and I trust that this, as Karel mentioned, is going to be a pivotal moment for us to actually figure out, oh, yeah, it's much better if we have DEXs in that context so we prevent a lot of this from happening. Right, so that wraps up today's discussion. Uh, thank you all so much for joining me. Um, where can people find more about you and your companies? Uh, Ludmilla. Well, you can find myself on Twitter. Uh, my handle is L-U-D-Y-L-U-P-S. I don't know if you got this. But you can search for um, Bankless, um, Bankless Brazil, if you're a Brazilian or Portuguese speaker. But you can also refer to Bankless as well if you're an English speaker and want to know more about DeFi, want to dive into these discussions and NFT and uh, dive more into the technology. So Bankless does an amazing work on that. And for Portuguese speakers, come to Bankless Brazil. Thank you. And Karel, how about you? Yeah, just go to uh, composable.finance, our website, to read more about our stuff. Uh, but for the developers listening in, check out our uh, GitHub repositories. They're extremely active. Um, we have loads of developers, contributors, and building a lot of cool stuff. Um, we've geared up for the long-term uh, bear markets and just trying to build as much as we can right now and try to innovate as much as we can uh, for the next market after all of this drama is behind us. Uh, how about you, Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. And you can find me at 0xMauricio on Twitter, Mauricio Magaldi on LinkedIn, and obviously 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We have lots in the works, and we're so excited to be talking about crypto and blockchain with all of you again. If you can't wait until the next episode, take a look at the many previous episodes and get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.